0: And then this morning, we're back in our Good Design Sermon Series, Sex, Love, and Marriage, God's Way. And so uh, as I have for the entire series, just kind of a a parental warning. If you have young kids in here, some of this content may not be quite appropriate uh, for them. And so if you have a little kid in here, now would be a great time to exit. Got a great preschool ministry right off to my right. If you go upstairs, got a great elementary school uh, ministry, then they're ready to welcome your kids. So... You have been warned. If you have an awkward conversation on the way home, it ain't my fault, all right? Now, what we've done for the last two weeks really is, is kind of set the foundation for a discussion about sex, love, and marriage, right? And so we've, we've talked about the design for sex, like who, who invented sex? So spoiler alert, it was, it was God. So he's, he's pro-sex, he's not anti-sex, regardless of what you may have heard Uh, growing up in church we've talked about who has the right to define sex and put boundaries around sex spoiler alert it's not you now it's not me it's not our culture right this is this is his world this is his air that we're breathing right he gets to define what it is and put boundaries around it we've talked about the difference even last week between uh, love and lust, right? That's a big one in our culture. I think a lot of people uh, really can't differentiate between what love and lust are. And so we have to have discernment as believers to know the difference. We've talked about how identity is really important to experiencing love and sex and relationships, like understanding who we are, our identity in Jesus. And so we've covered a lot of ground the last two weeks. And this week and next week, we're really gonna begin to get into some more of the nuts and bolts uh, today, I want to talk to you on the purpose of sex, the purpose of sex, and, and maybe some of the myths and lies that we have believed uh, together in our culture. Now, I realize that there are people that are either here in the room who are tuning in online, uh, that there are people that are, that are coming from every conceivable sexual background. So I realize that. And I just want to say uh, my purpose standing up here this morning is not to shame or condemn anyone, okay? And so one of the things we've said constantly throughout this message series is we are all sexual sinners, all right? That's, that's all of us. Now, that looks different for all of us, but at the end of the day, we are all in the same boat, right? We are broken, fallen imperfect people in need of a perfect savior who can reorient our hearts and our minds on the subject of sex and relationships and marriage and really so many other things in life. And so listen, I'm not here to to shame you. I'm not here to uh, heap guilt upon you. I'm not here to condemn you at all. But here's what I want to do. I want to present to you this morning a different sexual narrative than the one that probably most of us are are most familiar with, especially if you grew up in the United States or you grew up in some kind of Western culture or an environment, I want to present to you an alternative uh, view on the one that's most familiar to most of us on the subject of sex. See, the truth of the matter is that we are all products of our society and culture, all right? We just are. We can't help it It's inescapable. It doesn't matter if we want to to not be influenced by culture. It doesn't matter if we like to think that we can think independently from our culture. The reality is we have all been influenced and affected by culture. That's that's just part of who we are, and uh, nobody escapes that. The interesting thing when you read the Gospels, when you read the New Testament, Jesus is constantly calling people out of cultural norms and accepted practices to point them to a new kingdom and a new way of thinking about everything from sex to relationships to marriage to work to finances, you name it. Jesus calls us to this kind of countercultural, beautiful ethic of life that is far different and far better than anything else out there. Now, I believe there are two kind of primary sexual narratives in the world. There's what I'll call the kind of the the cultural narrative. Uh, That's the one most of us have kind of grown up with. And I think there's also a second one that I'll present to you called uh, what I'm calling the kingdom narrative of sex. The first one that we're going to talk about is the cultural narrative, the one most of us have grown up with. This is the one that that Hollywood kind of puts forth in front of us. This is the one that kind of mainstream culture projects of sex and this view of sex is, is, is really sees sex as nothing more than a physical appetite, all right? And so it's, it's kind of along the same lines of if you're hungry, what do you do? You eat. If you're thirsty, what do you do? You drink. If you're tired, what do you do? You sleep, right? If you're sexually aroused, what do you do? You, you try to find somebody to have sex with or maybe you indulge in pornography and get a release that way. It, it, this, this ideology basically says sex is a simple biological release, so it's not a big deal. And so this kind of predominant sexual narrative says, hey, listen, just follow your passions. You can just kind of pursue and customize your sexual experiences with whoever and however you like. It doesn't really matter, right? This narrative of sex celebrates things like BDSM. I'm not gonna go into that. You can look that up later. Polyamory, homosexual sex, heterosexual sex, outside of marriage, multiple partner sex. Basically, the ideology is Anything and everything goes as long as there are consenting adults in the picture. Because after all, we are just animals following biological instincts, right? That's kind of our predominant view in our culture of what sex is. Now, you need to understand that this viewpoint is is largely a byproduct of the sexual revolution in the 1960s, which promised us greater sexual freedom and liberation. So let me just read you a few quotes from some of the proponents of this sexual view. Uh, Wilhelm uh, Reich was a doctor and psychoanalyst who coined the term uh, sex positivity. So it's this kind of predominant view of sex that we have in our culture today. Uh, And this is how Wikipedia defines it because you know Wikipedia is never wrong. So this this is how Wikipedia defines it. The sex positive movement does not in general make moral or ethical distinctions between heterosexual or homosexual sex or masturbation regarding these choices as matters of personal preference. Other sex po- uh, positive positions include the acceptance of BDSM, polyamory, as well as asexuality. Carol Queen, a well-known sex- sexologist, and apparently that is a real I'm glad I didn't know about that when I was like 14, but that's a real, that is a real job. And um, she says this about the, the current mainstream sexual view. She writes this, it's a simple, this will be on the screens, it's a simple yet radical affirmation that we each grow our own passions on a different medium, that instead of having two or three or even half a dozen sexual orientations, we should be thinking in terms of millions. So it's not not even heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual, the possibilities are endless. Sex positive respects each of our unique sexual profiles. Even as we acknowledge, some of us have been damaged by a culture that tries to eradicate sexual difference and possibility. Uh, Helen Andrews wrote a book called The Men and Women Who Promise Freedom and Deliver Disaster. This is what she writes. The sexual revolution has mainly been to make women more sexually available to men, and isn't this true? This hardly even qualifies as an unintended consequence, just an unannounced one. Mary Eberstadt, in her book, Adam and Eve, Paradoxes of the Sexual Revolution, writes that the sexual revolution has accomplished, and I quote, the destigmatization and demystification of non-marital sex and reduce sexual relations in a general to a kind of a hygienic recreation in which anything goes so long as those involved are consenting adults. The New York Times in uh, 2017 published an article, and I quote, at any given time, there are an estimated 110 million sexually transmitted infections in the United States. There were about 321 million people in the USA in 2015 when the survey was done. Hence, about one out of every three Americans had some sort of STD. This includes people of all ages. Now, some psychologists and sociologists, even secular ones, non-Christian ones, have gone on to make the conclusion and create sort of a link are a hypothesis between the sexual revolution and an ever rising increase in our culture of mental illness and anxiety disorders because in our society for the last several decades, anxiety, depression, suicide cutting, self harming um, are all at alarming rates and increasing almost on an annual basis. And so guys, listen, now now, now we're 50 years into this sexual revolution experiment that promised more freedom and more liberation. Let me just ask you, how do you think it's going for us? How's it going for us? Did it it make true on its promise to make us a more liberated, more free, more happy people? Do you think it's made us more free or less free in the end? Is this sexual ethic really what's best for us as human beings? Is this really what's best for our children and for our grandchildren? Is this really the pathway to relational happiness and sexual flourishing for human beings? Now, in in some ways, this cultural movement of the last 50 years, it feels kind of new to us. But in other ways, we're, we're, listen, guys, we're really just buying an age-old lie. In fact, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 3 if you have a Bible this morning. Genesis chapter three, that's the very first book in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. Uh, it'll be on the screens for you. And at, let me just set the stage for you. At this point, a God has just created everything it is, right? The heavens, the earth, the plants, the animals, Adam and Eve, the first humans, right? God has just created everything. It's paradise, man. It is perfect harmony between God and humanity and animals. Like it, we, we can't even fathom really the kind of shalom that, ex, that existed in the Garden of Eden. So just imagine being naked with your spouse, right, unashamed. You wake up in the morning If you wanna ride a giraffe, you just ride a giraffe. You wanna wrestle with a tiger, you wrestle with a tiger. Just amazing existence, right? We can't even really fathom this type of shalom. And God invites Adam and Eve into a one flesh relationship, the first marriage, and he commands them to multiply and fill the earth. Now this is biblical language for have lots of sex, create more image bearers who will worship me and fill the earth. That's a pretty sweet deal. I'm signing up for that, right? Run around a garden naked with my wife forever, wrestling, you know, whatever. I don't know. It sounded pretty awesome. There's only, there's, only, there's only one rule, one caveat. I want this deal. It's not on the table anymore. Only one rule. Don't eat from that one tree. Everything's yours. Perfect harmony, God and man, man and creation, animal, perfect. Just one thing. Don't eat from that one tree in the garden. And we know how that goes, right? Let's read the narrative, Genesis 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did did God really say? That's kind of the first lie that we get in our culture, even when it comes to sexuality today, right? Did God really say? You shall not eat of the tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, second lie, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes are gonna be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, And that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now there's been a lot of speculation over the years. Where was Adam when Eve was deceived by the serpent? And Genesis 3 tells us he was right there. That punk was right there the entire time. He did not protect his wife. He did not defend her against the serpent. He didn't call out the lies. He stood there like a little passive punk. And so I have argued that the first sin in the garden was not eating the fruit. The first sin in the garden was Adam's passivity as husband, right? So guys, if you kind of been off the hook using that with your wife, wrong. Sorry, it's, it's on us, right? Then, the, then it's verse seven. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. It's so the first time they were even aware of it because there was no shame before sin. There was no guilt before sin. It was glorious. But now they've sinned. Now that there's shame involved, there's, there's rejection involved, there's comparison, involved, there's all this stuff. And then they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, so the first clothes to cover themselves up. Now scholars call this event in Genesis chapter three the, the great fall. And from this moment forward, sin entered our world and with it, pain and disease and suffering and a general disorientation of our hearts it's sort of like i don't know have you guys ever played uh that we played this on fourth of july with a bunch of our friends we got together it's sort of like this game where i don't know what it's called but you put your head on a on a bat and you you spin around like seven or eight times have you ever played that there's like a line of people and then you you got to run to the uh, the end of the line and after you spin around like seven times, it's, it's, literally, it's funny, right? People are falling down. People are stumbling right. They're stumbling left. They can't go straight no matter how hard they try. Listen, the Bible tells us we're all born that way. We're now born into sin, disoriented to the ways of our creator. And listen to me, guys. When it comes to sex, we are still believing the oldest lies in the book, now let me show you what I mean. I'm gonna give you a short list of kind of the, the lies that the ancient serpent or Satan used to deceive the first man and the first woman and you tell me if they sound familiar today in our culture and context. These are on the screens for you. Lie number one, you're missing out. You're missing out. Think about the, the, the conversation that the serpent had with Eve. Did God really say? Did God, did God really mean that? no. Do you really want to miss out on this exquisite fruit? I mean, look at it. It looks amazing. Can you just imagine how, how awesome this tastes? Look look how juicy this looks. I mean, you don't want to miss out on the best fruit in the garden, do you? No, it's not. It's just going to make you like God. Take it. Enjoy it. You don't want to miss out on this. And don't we buy the same old lie all these millennia later? Ah, oh, did, God, did God really confine sex to marriage between one man and one woman? Did God really say that? Come on, man. That, that can't be what he said. Why, why would God give you passions, create you with passions and desires that he didn't want you to fulfill? We hear that one a lot, don't we, in our culture. I'm just going to tell you, listen, if I fulfilled every passion desire I have, I would be in federal prison right now, divorced, everything else. Right? That's a product of the fall. We're all born with sinful inclinations and desires and passions that we need to kill, not celebrate or embrace. So don't, don't, miss, don't miss this. This idea is, hey, listen, don't miss out on this. Just indulge in sex however you want, however your passions lead you to. Listen to me. Same old lie. Same results. Promises life and freedom, ends in death and destruction don't believe the lie. You're missing out. That's the first one that that we hear in our culture about sex. Here's the second lie we hear about sex. It's no big deal. You've heard that one, haven't you? It's really no big deal. It's just a biological release. Take the fruit. Eat it. Enjoy it. You're not going to die. It's not going to kill anyone. heck, nobody even has to know about it. This This could just be our little secret. I mean, this is After all, this is a decision between two consenting adults. Why would God have a problem with that? It's no big deal. That's the second lie we hear. We saw that in the garden all those years ago. How about this one? Number three, you'll finally be happy. Just take the fruit and eat. You'll finally be happy. Don't, don't, Don't you feel like something is missing in your life? Of course, there's something missing in your life. You haven't tried the fruit in the middle of the garden. You haven't tried that one sexual experience or sex with that one different person. Just take it, enjoy, eat, indulge yourself and find the happiness that your heart longs for. How familiar does that sound? It sounds a lot like the sexual narrative in our culture today. Listen guys, same bait, same hook, same disastrous results all these millennia later. Which leaves us with the question that we started with. Is there another narrative of sex that is deeper and more meaningful and less destructive? And the answer is absolutely, yes, there is. Thank God there is. It's the kingdom sexual ethic of Jesus. And listen, it is beautiful and it is powerful. We read about it two weeks ago in Matthew chapter 19. I'm gonna put that back on the screens for you right now. We're just gonna kind of refresh by reading part of it. Jesus is answering a question About divorce, right? The Pharisees come to him. They're trying to trick him. They ask him a question about divorce. And he gives an answer and he hits on gender and sexuality and marriage all rolled into one as only Jesus could, right? So he answered them, the Pharisees, Jesus did, and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, so he's quoting Genesis one and two, made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus is really simple. He's really honest. One of the things I love about Jesus is he doesn't sugarcoat anything, does he? He just simply says, hey guys, here's, here's my ethic for gender and sex and marriage. It's super simple. Here it is. Here's the formula in my kingdom. One man, one woman, Glorious sex in the marriage for life. That's it. That's my sexual ethic. And he actually goes on to say, the only alternative in my kingdom for my followers is celibacy. Now his disciples hear this, and their response is probably the same response that some of you are having right now. Jesus, that is way too stinking hard. That is hard. If, If that's the limit, if those are the boundaries around sex, Man, maybe we should just do away with sex, do away with marriage entirely. This seems way too hard. And isn't that what our culture tells us today? Chris, man, that is is way too hard. That that sexual ethic is so outdated and old fashioned, man. And Jesus is like, yeah, listen, is, is it hard? Yes, it's hard. In fact, Jesus says, a lot of people aren't even gonna be able to accept this. A lot of people are gonna hear this and they're gonna walk away and they're gonna say, I cannot follow Jesus because this is too hard. This is too hard, but if you have ears, let him hear. This is, this is my kingdom sexual ethic, and it's for your good. And so Jesus says, is it hard? Yes, but it's also beautiful, and it's life-giving. Now now that we've kind of addressed some myths and some lies about sex, let's answer the question, what is the purpose of sex? What is the purpose of sex from a Christian worldview? And let me, let me if I could, just, just reiterate the point that, that sex was and is God's idea, Okay, so again, it's not one of those things where God was in heaven, and he looked down in the garden of Eden one day and he was like, oh, snap. And they figured it out. That looks fun, we better call it sin. All right, anything, anything that's fun, we're just gonna call it sin. That looks way too fun, we're gonna call it sin. That's not what happened. All right, God's idea, his invention, pro-sex, not anti-sex, all right? Now, where we go wrong, and not just with sex, with so many things, whether it's food or drink or sex or money, you name it, here's where we go wrong. We tend to, as fallen and sinful people, take a good gift and we begin to distort it. it. Whether it's food, drink, sex, money, whatever it is. We take a good gift, what was once good, and we begin to tweak it and manipulate it and change it to fit what we want and our desires or whatever the culture says we should do. We begin to change it to something that God it was never designed to be. And in that process of distorting a good gift, oftentimes, listen guys, this is what happens. We begin to worship the gift instead of the giver of the good gift. And we begin, when we begin to worship the gift instead of the giver of the good gift, we end up, end up in all sorts of relational and sexual and, and even a societal turmoil in our lives when we begin to depart from the design that God gave us. And listen, church family, I, I'm just telling you, I am convinced that as the people of God, we must recover what was lost in the garden all those years ago when it comes to a vision of healthy sexuality. This is too important for us. This is too important for our happiness. This is too important for the relational health of our kids and our grandkids. There is too much at stake for us not to fight for this and to rediscover God's grand design for sex and relationships and marriage and all of it. I heard a, a pastor many years ago use the analogy and he said, um, "He said, sex, sex is kind of like fire. So if someone were to come and ask you the question, is fire good, what would your answer be? It depends on where it is. <laughs> that, that's the correct answer, right? If, if the fire is in the fireplace on a cool winter night, it is beautiful and warm and safe and romantic and life-giving. But if that same fire is anywhere else in your house, in your bedroom, on the carpet, upstairs, your roof, it's no good anymore, <laughs> but right? it's bad it's dangerous why because it's going to cause destruction and pain and death listen it is actually the boundary of the fireplace that makes sex something wonderful but outside of that boundary it becomes destructive sex is the same way guys listen to me sex is something that is so mysterious and so powerful that the only container in this life that can safely hold it is a covenant marriage between one man and one woman. And I also want you to understand that, especially if you grew up in like an old school kind of legalistic church where everything was don't do this and just a list of rules. Let me, let me, let me just say this. Sex God's way is never meant to restrict us. You hear that, guys? I think a lot of us have this kind of perception of God that he's this crotchety old man rocking on a rocking chair with a long white beard and anything that looks like fun, he pulls out his bat and just starts whacking us. Oh, that's too fun, that's sin, that's, you can't do it. That is a wrong view of who God is. God's design for sex is not meant to limit us, it's not meant to restrict us, it's actually meant to free us so that we can fully enjoy him and another person in a full and life-giving way. And so what's the purpose of sex in God's kingdom? Let me give you four quick purposes of sex God's way. I'm gonna call this God's good purpose for good sex. All right, so four, four different ones. Number one is unity. Look at Genesis chapter two, verse 24. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become what? One flesh. By the way, same language Jesus just used in Matthew chapter 19, So when couples have sex, something mystical and spiritual begins to happen in that relationship, right? It's not just a mingling of two bodies, but it's a mingling of two human beings at the soul level. In that sense, sex is kind of like a sacrament, right? A, A physical act that touches on a deeper spiritual plane. Now, by the way, now studies have begun to show, and these are not Christian studies, these are secular scientific studies, are now showing that sex creates Not only a physical bond between two people, but also an emotional and relational bond at the neurochemical level. See, when you have sex with somebody, your brain releases oxytocin in the brain. There's also an increase in dopamine. So you get a dopamine hit. And what researchers are now discovering is that literally, listen guys, this is important. That literally creates new Neuropathways pathways in your brain That bond you to that other person This is a scientific fact now This is, this is well known, not disputed which, which listen In a covenant marriage Is awesome We want to create those bonds Physical, spiritual, emotional bonds With our spouse But listen to me In casual sex It is massively crippling To your emotional, spiritual, and mental health And even secular researchers Are beginning to admit this I want you to watch Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. This is, this is where it gets interesting. But the body is not meant for sexual immorality. That's that Greek word we've talked about the last two weeks, porneia. It means any sort of sexual activity outside of a covenant marriage between one man and one woman. He says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord Jesus and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute. The Greek word there is, is porne. I don't know that prostitute is the best translation. Probably uh, a sexually immoral person would be a, a better translation. And make them members of a, of a prostitute or a sexually immoral person. And Paul's answer is what? Never, never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute or a sexually immoral person becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee from sexual immorality. Don't toy with it. Don't, don't kind of walk on the boundary and see how far you can get to the line without crossing over. He says, flee from it. Run from it. Sprint from it if you're in Jesus. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual, sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So he's just talking about the significance of sexual sin is, is really important. Verse 19 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Which is, by the way, guys, this is the opposite of what our culture teaches us, isn't it? You're the captain of your own ship. You're the master of your own destiny. You just follow your heart. You just follow your passions. You be true to you. You do you, girl. That's kind of what our culture says. And Paul says, not if you're following Jesus. If you are blood bought and sanctified and you've been bought by the king of the universe, you do not belong to yourself anymore. He tells us why in verse 20, for you were bought with a price. And that price is the blood of Jesus on the cross. He's saying, believer, you don't belong to yourself anymore. You're not calling your own shots anymore. Jesus is calling the shots in your life. So glorify God in your body. Now, did you catch what Paul just said? Paul goes, listen, if you follow Jesus, you become one with him. Now, this is kind of disturbing imagery, but it's right in the text. You can go back and read it. He says, when you follow Jesus, you become one with him. And so when you practice porneia, any kind of sexual immorality, whether it's porn addiction or or sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend or homosexual sex or an affair on your spouse, whatever it is, when you practice any kind of porneia, you are taking Jesus into that act with you as you create a one flesh relationship with that other person. Do you think that might be a big deal to a perfect and holy God? And the answer is, it is absolutely a huge deal to God. Because Paul says, believer, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And so you are to flee sexual immorality outside the safety of a covenant marriage. So the first purpose of sex is the unity of two souls that reflect the full nature and character of God to the world. That's the first purpose, unity within a covenant marriage. The second purpose of sex in the Christian worldview. Number two is pleasure. It's pleasure. I know some of you are going to get a little uncomfortable at this part. It's okay. You can look down. You don't have to make eye contact. And if you grew up in an old school legalistic church, uh, you you know, you're just going to have to buckle up. It's going to be a little uncomfortable for a minute. We're going to get through this part. (laughs) Listen, uh, whoever whoever popularized the idea in the church world that God is anti-pleasure, or that God is somehow anti-sex, I'm just telling you, they they really missed the mark. That that is not the picture that the scriptures paint about sex or pleasure at all. In fact, sex, as we already said, is God's design. We didn't didn't invent it, It's, it's his idea, he invented it. Not only that, listen to me, our entire universe is hardwired for pleasure. I want you to think about it. The beauty of a sunrise over the ocean. The laugh of a little baby or a young child. The taste of an exquisite meal. Just think about whatever your favorite meal is right now. The enjoyment of a musical masterpiece. Now think about it, guys. Our our world very easily could have been created in black and white. And all different types of food could all taste like cardboard. Why isn't that the case? I would argue it's because we have a God who is a creative genius who is for pleasure, he's for exhilaration, he's for excitement, and he's for enjoyment. Now listen, guys, I, I don't wanna get too too graphic here because I'm not sure Mike Watkins could handle it, but there there are, there, I'm sorry, Mike, but there, there are, there are, science lesson, there are unusual amounts of nerve endings in certain areas of the male and female anatomy. You guys tracking with me? Do I need to draw a little thing? Okay, you good? Okay, all right, all right. So there's unusual amounts of nerve endings in certain areas of the male and female anatomy that create a cornucopia of pleasure when they come together. Now, I want you to listen to me. That biological reality serves no other purpose other than pleasure. Now, we're gonna talk about this next week. Some of you are already blushing. You can't make eye contact. We'll, we'll, We'll come back next week. Pleasure within the bounds of marriage, guys, is God's design and it is good, all right? So unity, purpose number one in Christian sex. Pleasure, number two, within the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. Here's the third uh, purpose of sex in God's design. Number three, procreation. Look at Genesis 1, First commandment he gives to Adam and Eve, the first human beings, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. God's first mandate to the humans, the first humans, is not read the Bible, memorize some verses, go to church. It, his first mandate to the first humans is get married, have lots of good sex, create more image bearers that are going to fill the earth and worship me. So let me just say if you're here, you're young, you're married, under the authority of the Bible, get busy. <laughs> get busy. Now make sure you're married first, all right? But if you're married, get it on. That's what God said, not me. Have sex, pop out some babies, raise them up to love Jesus and unleash them on a world that needs more people who love Jesus, all right? Now listen, an old pastor told me on my wedding day when I got married, uh, Cheryl and I got married, he said, hey, listen, y'all, he pulled me aside. I, I, I'm just gonna tell you this. Um, I know you're, this is your wedding night. Um, you, you guys have to have at least three kids. I said, I, I do, is that right? He said, yeah, you guys gotta have at least three kids, one to replace each of you and one to add to society. So by God, we had three kids and we are, and we, and we are good. So we obeyed that commandment. And, uh, so, and, then, and listen, I, I realize there are, there are many young couples that, that cannot, infertility is a real thing for many people and it's a painful thing for a lot of people. So let me just say, uh, if that's you, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I know that that can be a, a very difficult thing Um, So let me just say, if if that's you, and you're married, and you love Jesus, and you've tried, you can't have biological babies, could I just encourage you to consider and pray about adoption and foster care? There are millions of children in orphan, orphan things all over the world, Africa, China, Russia. There are millions of orphans across this planet, and there are thousands of foster kids in homes that are time to have a loving mom and a dad and parents. And so you cannot have biological kids. And maybe even if you do have biological kids, could I just prompt you, please consider and pray about adoption and foster care. We have... We have several families in our church right now that are going through that and we're trying to walk with them through that and it's a hard process, it's an arduous process but it's a beautiful process and I think it's a beautiful picture of how God loves us, has adopted us into his family, right? So if you can't have babies biologically, that, that's okay. Consider adoption, consider foster care and then have lots of good sex with your spouse. God said so, right? <laughs> That's number three, procreation. Number four, the last purpose purpose of Christian sex in God's kingdom, number four, is sex serves as a signpost. And what I mean by that is sex is designed to point us to something greater even than sex itself, right? The, The unity that we experience in covenant sex is designed to point us to a deeper unity that Jesus experiences with his bride, the church, with us, right? It's meant to point us to a greater spiritual reality. Now, we're gonna get into this more next week when we talk about dating and marriage, but listen, I want you to understand this. The pleasures of sex are meant to foreshadow the pleasures of heaven. The the, the pleasure of sex is meant to to point us to foreshadow the pleasures of heaven. Listen to me. Every good gift in this world is meant to point us to the giver of that good gift. Everything, sex, sex, Food, a good drink, a good vacation, a beautiful sunrise, everything, every pleasure in this world is intended to point our heart's affection to the giver of all of those pleasures. So the sunrise over the ocean, that perfectly cooked filet mignon. Making love, making love to your spouse. Walk through the woods on a beautiful fall day where the leaves are all yellow and red and orange. All of those pleasures designed to point us to the designer of all of those pleasures. I want you to understand something. If you study Christian history, the early church, the first Christians in the first, second, and third century, they flipped the Roman culture and world on its head, not by following culture, but by living very countercultural lifestyles. They had an entirely different worldview than the culture around them. The Roman culture, the Greek culture, they had an entirely different view of sex. He had an entirely different view of marriage, an entirely, entirely different view of how to spend your money and spend your life. In fact, I want to read from you just a section of a letter to a, a man in the, the first couple of centuries of the church named Diagnatius. We don't even know who the author is, um, but but he was a guy that apparently was exploring Christianity. And so he was considering the claims of Christianity and this guy is writing him describing the early church, the early Christians. I want you to listen to the description of the early Christians who flipped the world on on its head. This will be on the screens for you. About the Christians, he writes, "'They dwell in their own countries, "'but simply as sojourners. "'As citizens, they share uh, in all things with others, "'and yet they endure all things as if foreigners. "'Every foreign land is, as to them, their native country, "'and every land of their birth as a land of strangers.' They marry as do others, they beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. So there's the value of human life from womb to tomb right there. Now that's another sermon for another day. They marry as do others, they have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, so this is the idea of hospitality, but not a common bed. This idea of a different sexual ethic. They have a common table, hospitality, but not a common bed, they don't share their spouse sexually with other people. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but are citizens of heaven. I love that. They obey the prescribed laws, and at the same time, they surpass the laws in their lives. They love all and are persecuted by all. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are completely destitute, and yet they enjoy complete abundance. They are reviled, and yet they bless. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers, undergoing punishment. They rejoice because they are brought to life. And what a beautiful picture of the early church. And I'm just telling you, church, we need to reclaim a different worldview, not just on sex, but on money and kids and marriage and everything else in this world. The early church flipped a pagan Roman empire on its head, not with an army, but a different view of the kingdom of God. I wanna read from you as we close, the band can go ahead and start coming up. This is from the Apostle Paul 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul writes this, "For this is the will of God, your sanctification." Now that is just a big churchy word ch- churchy word for making you more like Jesus. "For this is the will of God, your sanctification." That listen, you abstain from what? Sexual immorality, porneia. That each one of you know how to control his or her own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives the Holy Spirit to you. So let me just say, friend, please, please, Do not disregard God's instruction on this. Listen to me, his kingdom sexual ethic is for your good. It is not to restrict you, it is to free you. And listen to me, it matters more than we know. We're gonna pray now and then we're gonna celebrate the Savior who came into this world, who offers us a better way, a better kingdom for our flourishing relationally and sexually in this life and the life to come. Let's pray. And then we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we come to you. And we are so grateful, Father, that you love us enough to give us the truth, not because you hate us, not because you want to restrict us, not because you want to tamp down our fun meter in life. You give us the truth because you love us like a good father and you want to free us in this life and you want us to experience all of your good gifts in the most meaningful, safe, powerful way in this life, God. And so would you teach our hearts to lean into you and to trust you and to trust your word when, even when everything around us and everyone around us tells us that it's foolishness that following your kingdom ethic is so outdated and old-fashioned and out of touch. God, would you remind us that through the ages, you stand as a firm truth that we can, we can just base our entire lives on and our decision-making process on, God? So would you teach us to love you, to trust you, to follow you, to follow in your pathway when it's easy? And especially, God, would you teach us that it's worth it when it's hard? Would you teach us to live Revolutionary, countercultural lifestyles, not just for our good and the good of our marriages and our families and our own sexual flourishing, God, but would you teach us to walk in your ways for the good of the world? That our lives would point people, that our lives would serve as a signpost to show people that there's a better way, that there's an alternative kingdom that's even better than what this world has to offer, God. Would our lives point people into your kingdom and your ethic, God. Would you help us to walk that out when it's easy, when it's hard. We pray and we ask all these things in the strong and the beautiful name of your son and our savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.